0: Well, as you can see below that song, our sermon text this morning is Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Well, if you were looking in a physical Bible, uh, you can probably see that we don't have very far to go until we conclude this letter. And, uh, and, and it makes sense then that where we began reading this morning, I talked last week about how it's really the hinge, right? Seek where Christ is above, where your life is hidden. That's the transition between the first part of the book and then the second part. We are in the home stretch then of this letter and in this home stretch Paul is really unpacking in very specific ways and it'll it'll really get even more specific the next time we, we come here in a couple of weeks very specific ways of what it means to live out of the fullness of Christ that is already ours begins to unpack what it means to live the Christian life. Again, the first part, I've I've given this outline a bunch, hopefully you're, you're tired of it, because if you're tired of it, you know it, right? The first half of the book, Paul just keeps reinforcing the idea of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. For all things pertaining to salvation, for all things pertaining to living your Christian life, if you are in Christ, you are full in him. Now, you may have false teachers like in Colossae, and these false teachers come in, and they challenge this idea, and here's the thing, we are always tempted with the challenge of that idea to add something to Jesus, because remember the anxiety that we function with. It's the anxiety of, but do you know how bad the world is? How can I possibly just stick with just Jesus? Do you know how bad I am, the struggles that I have? How can you insist to me that Jesus is enough? But that's exactly what Paul wants us to grasp hold of. Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. And then last week we looked at the tension that we often experience because Paul's telling us if you're in Christ, you are full. And our response so often is this is it. It doesn't feel like it, it's not the experience that I have. And so Paul urges us don't go inward. Don't go outward, meaning don't let others come in and challenge that you have the fullness that's yours in Christ. Instead, go upward. Seek where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and where your lives are hidden with him. And now we, we, we turn to, to the most practical of questions, right? So what? So what now? What do I do? What does this mean for me? What's the application? What does my life in Christ look like here and now? And so Paul tells us what to do. He shows us how to live. He tells us why we are to live in this way. He tells us where the power to live in this way comes from, the promises upon which we stand. And this is an important one. He also shows us the hope for change in our lives. That's an important thing to grasp, isn't it? Is that being a Christian is this hope for change, that God saves us and does not leave us where we are, but he transforms us by his spirit. And for Paul and for the rest of the New Testament writers, the basic message is how to live always comes from who you are. How to live always comes from who you are. And if you are a Christian, this means that you are in Jesus. You're united to him. I've given you this picture of Paul filling up our gas tanks with the gospels, with the gospel. (laughs) And once we know that gas tank is full, then Paul says, put it in drive. But friends, the tank has to be full of the gospel. We have to constantly be refilling our hearts to seek Christ above in order to pursue faithfulness because if not, then we will, as Paul warns us, we'll just be indulging the flesh. Or maybe we'll burn out and get tired. Or maybe we'll abandon this altogether and we'll go seek fullness elsewhere. And so when we talk about how to live, we always have to begin with, well, who are we already in Christ? And this is not an easy message to grasp. It's not an easy message to grasp. I've been in some kind of Reformed ministry, Presbyterian ministry, for about 15 years. And over that time, I've never once received the complaint of being too legalistic. I have received the complaint of maybe focusing too much on grace. I will live with that. That's fine. And yet, here's the thing, and this is going to counteract what I just said. I have had half a dozen conversations with mostly younger people who are starting to think about leaving the faith or maybe they have left the faith and do you know what always comes up in those conversations? I'm tired of the rules. Do you know my response is, when did you ever hear that message here? When did you ever hear the message that it was all about the rules? And they say, well, you know, we didn't really hear it here. And my point is this, it's like we have this filter in Adam And it takes God's word and it filters out his promises and his power and his grace. And it leaves us trying to put together a resume that God will find acceptable. Or again, it leaves us bitter and we quit. And we seek something else. We seek a different way of living. That's why our passage is so important today, because this is in particular a word for Christians. If you're not a Christian, if you're here because a family member made you be here, if you're here because you're just kind of kicking the tires of Christianity, I hope this is helpful because this is a presentation on what it means to live the Christian life. This is Christian ethics. This is Christian morality. And the way we'll think about it this morning is what does Christian growth look like? That's the question. What does Christian growth look like? look like? And our text gives us some really good answers. Three answers we're going to pull from it. It looks like putting sin to death. It looks like putting on Christ. And then it looks like putting yourself in community where the word of Christ is center. Those are the ingredients for growth according to Colossians 3. Putting sin to death, putting Christ on, and then putting yourself in community where the word of Christ is center. All right, so first key to growing in your Christian walk, is putting sin to death. We see this very clearly, right? In, in verse five of chapter three, Paul says, put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. This is pretty dramatic, isn't it? This is a dramatic verb that Paul uses. He doesn't say suppress that, that sin, right? He doesn't say set it aside. He says kill it. Put it to death. The the old King James Version talked about mortification. We are to mortify that which is earthly in us. Let's listen to that word because it supplies urgency, doesn't it? It supplies gravity to, to how we are to deal with sin in our lives. We are to put it to death. We are to starve it, strangle it, get rid of it. One of the great English-speaking theologians was John Owen, a British Puritan. And, and maybe his most well-known work uh, that, that's still read all of the time is called The Mortification of Sin. And Owen wrote this. He said, make it your daily work to mortify sin. Cease not a day from this work. Right? Every single day, putting sin to death. It, it sounds a lot like Martin Luther's first of his 95 Theses. Every day of the Christian life is one of repentance. And then maybe Owen's most quoted line from that work is, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. See, if if you just put that sin in the basement, it's going to grow. It's going to grow. It's not going to stay the same. Sin does not remain stagnant. If you don't kill the sin, if you don't rip out the weed from the root, it will overtake your heart can't entertain it. You can't coddle it. When you identify it in your heart, you have to grab hold of it, and you have to root it out. And what's so interesting about this list of sins, we have two of them, is, is that for the most part, these are not really outward behaviors, especially the first list. Sexual immorality, which is really the umbrella term for any kind of sexual conduct or activity outside of the covenant of, of, a, of a marriage, of a, of a man and, and a woman, that's the umbrella term, Okay, but, but notice all of the other sins in the list, they all kind of lead up to sexual immorality, don't they? Evil desire, passion, covetousness. Now this is important because Paul is really listing a list of desires, right? This is, this is a list of sins that live in our hearts. Now remember the false teachers because they're coming in with asceticism and they're saying you need to add to Jesus some rigorous self-discipline And what they're doing is they're fencing the behaviors, but they're not getting to the root of the problem, which is the tree. They just want to put a fence around the tree. I think that's generally a problem with all legalistic forms of spirituality. You're not dealing with the actual problem. You don't have the power alone to deal with the actual problem. The fence only gets you so far. We went through the letter of James a a few weeks ago, and there is, I think, a Uh, a a parallel here between the ethics of James and Paul. That makes sense, right? They're followers of Jesus. Uh, they're, they're, They're serving the Lord Jesus. And so it makes sense that they would align on this, and they really do. Because James is concerned with the heart. It's the heart that when it's not controlled, it gets more and more momentum and it leads to sin. And then James is really concerned with how we use our mouths and our speech because he's saying... We don't know what's in your heart until you do speak. So you need to watch what you say, because that will reveal the depths of the problems in your heart. I think Paul is saying something similar here. First, put to death the list of these desires that are in our heart. And then, secondly, in the second list in verse 8, it's all about the sins of the mouth. It's anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Do not lie to one another. Now, here's what's remarkable. Let's take a step back. Here's what's remarkable. This letter was written 1,960 years ago, give or take a couple of years on either side. I don't know how you feel, but that's a long time. 1,960 years. Let me ask you this question. If Paul were alive today, wouldn't he still use these lists? Like, isn't that remarkable? There is so little in common with modern American culture and ancient Colossae. Colossae. <laughs> There's so little in common, but the human heart remains the same. These are still the lists you would use sexual sins, these sins of desire that produce particularly sexual sins, and then these sins of anger. I don't have to tell you we live in an incredibly hypersexualized culture. To some extent, so did Colossae in the ancient Greco Roman world. It'll still make the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up when you read about kind of the sexual culture of, of paganism in the ancient world. I think we have the technological advances to maybe take us even past them in terms of our hypersexualization. Sexual identity, we're told that is your identity. That is exactly who you are. There is one grave sin, which is to deny that and to tell someone to deny that. That is the chief cardinal sin of our age. Sociologists talk about the pornification of our society. I remember before we had kids, we, we had a Super Bowl party and there was a nine-year-old there. And, and you watch the Super Bowl differently if you haven't been around kids and all of a sudden this little nine-year-old shows up and you go, oh no, what is happening? It's absolutely everywhere. And Paul says, you gotta put that to death. You have to put it to death. You have to put out all of the desires that are in your heart, all, all of, all of those, those things, those imaginations and, and, and desires of your heart, you have to kill them. Otherwise, they will grip your heart. They will grip your heart. Remember who you are. Remember where this is grounded. You are dead to those sins already. That is not who you are. Your identity is not found in here the deeper you go. Your identity is found where your life is hidden in Christ. The gospel says those who are found in Christ, they they belong already to God. All of the shame you feel, when you think of sexual sin and sexual desires shame is a really important idea there. And all of the shame you feel, it's covered by Jesus. Where else will you turn? All of the lies our culture says about where fullness is found are exposed as hollow and insufficient. Remember, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And it's not because you were the pure. It's not because you were the devout. It's not that you saw culture going to hell in a handbasket or, or, or hand and then you said, well, that's foolishness. I'm not going to be part of that. No, it's that God and his mercy broke into your life and he saved you. It's the written code that stood against you, this written code that you and I would wear that says you are the sexually immoral, the written code that says you are the idolater Jesus took upon himself and he bore the penalty for those sins. And if we live in a hypersexualized culture, so we also live in an angry culture where these sins are also so prevalent. This is the age of anger. You can see it on college campuses. You can see it in the social media algorithms that are all trying to get us angry. You can see it in cable news channels. You can see it in the progressive world. You can see it in the conservative world. I've told you this before. I would be ashamed of my unbelieving friends and family going onto Presbyterian Twitter. I would be ashamed if they saw what comes up there. And Paul's saying, well, put it away. Put it away. You don't have to join the age of anger and suspicion and fear as if that's just what you're supposed to do. Instead, put it away. We're to put off anger and wrath. Malice means I said something to hurt you. The Greek word for slander is blasphemia, blasphemy. You speak against someone and you dishonor God because that someone is made in God's image. You speak in a way to harm or injure his reputation as harmless as, have you heard about so-and-so? What do you think about that? How do you feel about that? Obscene talk is abusive speech. It's speech against someone intended to harm them. And then Paul finally exhorts the church, don't lie to one another because words matter. Just like James said, words matter, words destroy. Words are so powerful, they build up and give life. Unfortunately, they're maybe more effective at killing and they're more effective at destroying. And Paul says, you can put it all away. You can can put it all away. Don't feed the old man. You put off who you were in Adam, right? Just put that away because that's not who you are. Put on Christ, Put on these new clothes. It's not just behavior modification. It's this understanding that I belong to a new reality. I belong to a new kingdom. I belong to a new man. I belong to Jesus. So that's the first step to growth. Every day, every day identifying the desires, identifying what's coming out of my mouth, identifying what I do with my hands, and putting it to death. We can't mess around with sin. But that's not the only message we hear. There's a second part of Christian growth, which is not just killing and putting away, but we have to put on. The Greek here is "clothe." We, we, we have to get dressed. We have to put on the robes of Jesus. Now, what does that mean, to put on Christ? It means you put on the clothing of Jesus' own character. So put on as the rightful wearer of these clothes. They belong to you because you are in Christ. Paul tells us who are you? You are the chosen ones, holy and beloved. Friends, that's the motivation for growth. You are the chosen ones, holy and beloved. Your putting on Christ has nothing to do with your goodness but his grace. Nothing to do with how lovable you are but on his love. You bear the titles that belong to Jesus by nature and by merit. He is the chosen one, holy and beloved, and he gives you his name, and we are to wear him. It's like Jesus goes to the closet, right, and he's going through his wardrobe, and he picks out chosen, holy, beloved, and he says, here, put these on. And you say, are you sure? And Jesus looks at his scars, and he looks at you, and he says, I've never been more sure of anything. They belong to you. I secured them just for you. And so in verse 12, what are we getting dressed with? What are we putting on? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, already it fits funny, it feels like we're wearing dad's suit as a little kid, but we put on a suit that's compassionate, it's one of kindness and humility and meekness and patience, it's bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, we forgive that person because the Lord has forgiven us, so we have to forgive See, what we're asking as we're, as we're awkwardly trying on these robes, right? We're saying, well, where have I seen this worn perfectly? Where have I seen this worn perfectly? Where have I seen compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience before? We're going back to the one who wears them by nature. Right? We're imitating Jesus. The Savior moved with compassion. He looked at the crowds, these knucklehead crowds, right? And he so moved with pity because he likened them, likens them to, to those who are sheep without a shepherd. It's the kindness of Jesus who, who healed the sick, right? Everyone who, who was cast aside, I don't, I don't want to be seen with them. And Jesus invites them near. And he touches them and he heals them. He dines with the untouchables of society. It's Jesus the humble who took the form of a servant in order to save. It's Jesus the meek who tells you who are lowly, come to him because he is gentle and lowly. And his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And So friends, we see these characteristics in the life of Jesus. We experience in our salvation A to Z of our salvation, we experience these attributes as those saved by Jesus, and then we are to reflect these attributes in our relationships with others. How comfortable are you wearing these clothes, though? How well do they fit? One commentator talking about kindness, he says this. He says, you know, it's strange. In view of the emphasis given by Paul to this basic virtue of kindness, how often it is regarded and in practice as inessential. And yet, every time Paul lists virtues, it's here. Why is it in those lists of virtues? Because what else is Jesus but Jesus the kind? In a post Christian world, just as in a pre Christian world, we're going to see a lot of similarities, right? I talked about the hypersexualization. We're going to see those kinds of similarities. Um, I mentioned in previous weeks the spiritual smorgasbord, just like Colossae was surrounded by all these different spiritual options. So we are surrounded by spiritual options. But let me suggest one more parallel between the pre-Christian world and our very post-Christian world. It's that the virtues of Christianity will once again be foolish and weak. Does that make sense? The robes of Jesus, they won't fit in a society where they used to maybe fit better. How do you win if you're being kind and meek? How do you win? You know, Humility in the ancient pagan world was never a virtue. Do you know why it was never a virtue? Because at least for us, it is always a response to grace. Always a response to grace. It, who am I that you would call me chosen, holy, and beloved? Who am I? The passage uh, this week, of course, ties in with last week. Where are we seeking? Well, we must seek upward where Christ is. And again, that's not esoteric. It's not escapist. It's meditating on the glories of Jesus. It's beholding the person of Christ. It's God's sanctifying work by his spirit as he makes us more and more like Jesus. In other words, the clothes begin to fit better. The clothes begin to fit better. And then all of these virtues, they're tied together with love. I don't really know what the analogy the better analogy would be. Maybe it's like a king who's dressed in, in royal robes, and it's not till the crown is placed on his head that you say, "Now that's a king." The crown ties it together. Or maybe it's suspenders that keep pants up. It's love that binds all of these together in perfect harmony. First, John 4:11: "Since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Colossians 3: we forgive because we are those who are forgiven. And finally, the rule of Christ is the rule of peace. How can we live our lives out of God's reconciling work if we are unable to extend that reconciliation to others? Every day we put on these robes, trusting that the Spirit is, is making them fit a little better. Now, how do we continue to grow? You put sin to death, put on Christ. We don't do it alone. We put ourselves in community where the word of Christ is centered. I'll suggest that none of these virtues make any sense if you aren't part of a church. None of these virtues make sense. Um, husbands and wives, you've got to do more than bear with one another, right? Uh, it's, it's bad marriage counseling. If I tell a struggling husband, well, you've got to bear with your wife, man. <laughs> you got to do more than that. Uh, And yet, maybe in the church where we're coming from different places and different backgrounds, that is exactly what we need to do sometimes, right? We have to bear with one another. And and when we get offended, and and in churches we're going to get offended sometimes, uh, we not only have to bear with one another, but we have to extend forgiveness to that person who needs to be forgiven. Because all of these dividing lines are represented here in this church, Now, we're baptized, and that means our our baptismal identities should be the priority. They they relativize, they wash those identities. It's why Paul says here in the church, there is no Greek or Jew, barbarian or Scythian. That basically means those in the boonies and then those in the the far-off boonies. There's no slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. The New Living Translation is pretty good on this. It says here, Christ is everything. And so growth will take work as we figure out how to do life with one another in a way where the goal is Christ is everything. The banner that flies over this church, the the banner that flies over all of Christ's church is he is all in all. To strive together as a church testifying through word and deed that the gospel means something. Let me give you a personal example of how I have experienced the gospel meaning something. Uh, this was at the end of the end of COVID. We're still in COVID tide. It's the never-ending church calendar season. Uh, but this was when we finally came back inside. If you are new with us, we were outside in this glorious parking lot for about 11 months. And we finally came into this room, and I had three separate conversations that God has, has used mightily to work in my heart and encourage me. Three different conversations where people responded. And if you hear it yourself, remember, you're a blessing to me, and I mean, you're going to see why. As is, is you said, it is good to be in, uh, inside because I hated being outside. I had no idea they hated it. In fact, if you would have asked me, I would have said of all three of these families in my mind, I think they loved it because they were there every Sunday, worshiping. Why does that mean something to me? They were bearing with love, weren't they? They were bearing with love. It's where you say the gospel means something. It's like you you have three families who, who are living according to this reality that says I am part of something bigger than me and I'm invested and I'm bearing with you in love and I hate being outside. And by the way, no one hated being outside more than me. You thought you heard motorcycles revving? I heard them a mile off as I was trying to preach over these motors. Jesus didn't have the motorcycles on the Sermon on the Mount, right? We did have geese one day, as you all remember. But that's what I mean. We're striving together as a church, testifying that the gospel means something. And here's the thing. These lists that Paul gives us... Um, They're not to be accomplished in our own strength. If if you know anything about CrossFit, they have workouts of the day. So you come in, you see your exercises, you see how many repetitions and like the time you're supposed to do it. Paul mercifully does not give the church a bunch of workouts of the day to do. He says, in fact, here is the power to do it in verse 15. Remember the peace of Christ rules in your heart, present tense. The peace of Christ rules in your heart. And it's the God of reconciling love that creates a body that replicates and makes fresh in every place, and every generation, God's reconciling work among his people. And it's in this messy community where we get offended, where we have to bear with one another, that we come to receive and return the word of Christ. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But remember, your heart is not a dam, it's a river, Right? And so it pours forth with with teaching and admonition. Now that certainly includes the formal teaching ministry. God has given teachers to the church, but I would suggest that all of us are part of this ministry of teaching and admonition. Let me give you a couple of examples of where I could see that at work. Uh, Let's say you have a couple of moms who are on a play date together and and one of the women is, is really discouraged. One of the women is having a horrible time and you feel so bad. You can say, you have the priestly authority, women, to say, I hear your problems, but you know what you need to hear right now, first of all, how much God loves you, that you are a holy one, chosen and beloved. Will you hear that word? Because you're not hearing that word very clearly right now. Men, let's say you're together and, and, and one of you says, man, I, just, I, I blew up at my, at my kid last week. I've had this real anger issue. And so you wanna come alongside that, that, that brother in Christ and you wanna say, I want to in, encourage you. Yeah, you need to do the hard work of repentance to your family, but you know what? You know your sins are forgiven, right? Do you hear that authority that is given to you? yes, we do this every Sunday. I come, I lift my hands up as, as one who is speaking for Jesus to you, but you have this authority to let the word of Christ dwell in you and then you pour that out on someone when you see that need. And you say, brother, your sins are forgiven. You know that, right? You know Jesus cherishes you, right? Yeah, there's hard work to do, but it's gotta be grounded there. Paul goes on, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. This is the place where we sing of Christ and his work. I think we all know in 2022 church music is a weird thing. It's one more area where we have to bear with one another. Churches split over music. You have worship wars. Every Christian, everyone in this room probably has, a, has an opinion and, and preference on how we think about church music. And oftentimes it's because we think of it as how is the music ministering to me, right? That's the question. But notice how Paul is using music here. The question isn't how is music ministering to me, but in music, how are you ministering? I think it's the singing in the service where we're all ministering to each other. In music, you are the ministers. You are the ones who are proclaiming doctrine. You are the ones who are proclaiming scripture and the glories of Christ, and you're communicating it around this room. Uh, many of you have heard this spiel from me, but, but we're really committed to, to whole family worship here at, at CPC. And, and one of the lines I will, I will often tell families is, the most important sermon, so to speak, for a two-year-old or a three-year-old is to see mom and dad singing and to look down the aisle and see another grown-up singing because it's weird. It's unlike anything else we have in our culture. Music is the time where we are ministering the word of Christ together. And so what's the point? Let's wrap this up. This is the place that is the treasury of Christ. This is the place that is the storehouse of the word of Christ. It's preached here. It's taught here. It's prayed here. It's sung here. The word is visibly on display at this table where Christ's body and blood are taken up in our hands and ingested. It is seen in baptism when Christ, by his word and by his spirit, calls a people to himself chosen holy and beloved as we wrap this up let me mention one more area of this community this could be a fourth point but i'll be brief this is a community that's shaped by thankfulness did you notice that if you read this carefully it's something that i think we could we could we could move past too quickly except for the fact that paul mentions it three times I think if he mentions it three times, we probably shouldn't just consider it a throwaway line. And so in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called one body, and then randomly, three words, sentence, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let me add a fourth way that we grow. You fight like heck for gratitude. You fight for gratitude, thankfulness to the God who has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Thankfulness for the hope that you have, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thankfulness, this fight for gratitude that dares to establish this counter reality over against the world outside these doors over against the world of of often despair that surrounds us. It's thankfulness for the forgiveness of sins and that I have died to sin through no death of my own. Thankfulness for the God who serves by his grace and who by that same grace grows us more and more into those who are becoming what we already are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word of power and grace as we face the life that you have called us to. There is a need for power and grace because it's hard. It's the good life. It's, it's the path of, of life. It's the path of, of blessedness and goodness, and it's the life of joy. Uh, I still have not met the person who has regretted choosing holiness But we all know, even personally, the person who has regretted the choice of that which is not holy. And so, Lord, we are hard people. Your yoke is easy, we're not. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, establish root in our hearts the power and and grace of the gospel that we would go into our lives with this word ever ever present in our minds of the, the seriousness of sin that needs to be snuffed out. The wonderful robes of Jesus that, that we see uh, perfectly worn by him in the gospel. A robe that you have given to us, though we do not deserve it. And yet robes that belong to us because we are in him. Lord, would you create in this community a community of love, a community where forgiveness reigns, a community that is thankful, that we fight for thankfulness. Um, It's not by osmosis that gratitude is presented, but it's hard work. It's choosing, even in the pain, it's choosing, even in the valleys of darkness, to to know with confidence and to grasp hold of the, the staff of our shepherd, of knowing that you work in all things for our good. Even when we don't see it, Lord, we confess it's true. Lord, would you establish all of these realities in our hearts? Would we be people who desire growth in you? Holy Spirit, would you impress that upon our hearts? We give you thanks, in Jesus' name, amen.